0: Lock, talk radio.
1: Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. I apologize for having the brief postpone. We had a miscommunication in regards to time zone. Um, tonight, my guest is, once again, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, you would probably remember him from Zeitgeist Moving Forward, one of the experts on behavior. Thanks again for coming on, Doctor. Pleasure. And, and I forgot you prefer to be called Gabor um, Gabor. Well, um, Dr. Gabor, uh, everybody was really happy with the previous segment. Um, I get a lot of comments on it. A lot of people were looking forward to this one as well. Um, and I guess the first thing I would ask is: is there anything new going on with you? Any new books? Any new lectures? Anything you'd like to tell the audience about?
0: Huh. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm up to so much stuff. I don't know what to tell you. Um, well, uh, finally, my books are going to get published in Hungary, which is my homeland. And uh, my books have been published in 20 languages, almost around the world, in five continents, but never the country where I was born, and you know, which is my uh, mother country, you might say. So I'm very pleased to go there next year and lecture and speak, and in, in Hungarian, none of, which won't do most of your listeners very much good here, but but I'm excited about it.
1: Good. Well, no, that's still good news. Um, all right. Well. Uh I guess uh first of all we we talked about a lot of different issues on the um the last show uh, in regards to behavior and things of that nature. Um and I know that you you work you said that uh you worked with you always re- basically referred to your downtown east side patients. Um where do you practice?
0: Well, uh look I live in I live in Vancouver, British Columbia and um so for uh I suppose uh, 20 years or 22 years, I was in family practice. I also worked in palliative care, looking at, I was the director of the palliative care unit at uh, Vancouver Hospital, looking after terminally ill people. And then for 12 years, I worked in the downtown east side with uh, a a population that's highly addicted and HIV and all the usual um, consequences of addiction. And uh, right now I'm I'm not working as a doctor at all. I'm traveling and speaking and teaching and conducting seminars and uh, leading healing retreats and um, doing radio interviews. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I call myself a commercial traveler these days.
1: Yeah, the extra travel. That's why one of the reasons I was a little confused. I mean, because I thought you were on the east side or you're like on the Eastern time, and I, I guess you're in the Pacific time now. Or you, you I guess you're traveling at the moment, then. No no,
0: this is where I live. Vancouver is in the, is on the west coast, the Pacific time.
1: What was I thinking? That's weird. Okay. Uh, well, you're a, ty- <laughs>
0: you're a typical American, you know, nothing about Canada.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. Um yeah, actually it's it's funny Is I, I saw this little cartoon that somebody made about uh, how America's view the world, America's yeah. view the world and it, and it put Canada as uninhabited.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it didn't even have Africa, the African continent on the map at all.
0: Um, yeah.
1: And on Mexico, it said these people do our laundry. And in South America, it said coffee comes from here, I think. It's
0: uh, <laughs> really funny. I, uh, I I don't know if I mentioned in a previous interview this cartoon about Ronald Reagan's world. Mm-hmm. It had this little Ronald Reagan character in short pants, kind of anxious and small-looking, on this very small little island of the United States. hmm Looming above him was this giant Cuba with this. Uh, gigantic Castro threatening him, mm-hmm. and behind him there was this giant Libya with this gigantic Gaddafi threatening him. You know, this is the world that Ronald Reagan lived in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's actually an excellent point. This it, was was an American, it, was, it was an American
0: cartoon. It was really fine a political cartoon.
1: Yeah, that's you it, know, it's funny how this, well a political satire does.
0: Well, actually, what what, what that cartoon actually um, brought out so well. Uh, is that the world we live in is the world that we see with our minds? So that the Buddha said 2,500 years ago that it's with the minds that it's with the minds that we create the world. So however you see the world, that's the world you live in, and that's the world you relate to, and that's the world that you um, uh, uh, react to. So we don't react to the real world; we react to our we react to our interpretation of the world, and that's different for and there's shared. There's a lot of shared neuroses, I suppose. But for each person, they live in their own world.
1: That's very true. And I remember because I'm actually doing a research, uh, like for right now, for my own documentary about internet trolling and cyberbullying. And
0: right. um,
1: I'm, it's amazing to me how much uh, the truth can be distorted. I mean, people think of the internet as their freedom of information, and they they tend to forget that there's also a lot of noise on the internet and people. Really have some strong beliefs about things that sometimes I just shake my head about because they you know they they have their own conditioning and and things of that nature that help to affect their worldview so reality for them is very different from people who were raised differently and that's that all comes down to the the conditioning we were talking about and I always thought about you know m- you know morality was one aspect of that obviously but the the fact that you perceive the world entirely differently um yeah. it, it's it's really powerful it it, it affected my parenting too. I'm um, yeah, very big on what my children get exposed to, um, but uh, one. Of, actually, I just got a question from the chat room. Um, what do you think of Skinner's radical behaviorism as opposed to other theories in that field?
0: Well, Skinner is a great uh, psychologist. If you want to know how rats operate in a cage, and that's about it. If you take <laughs> if you take a, a rat and you want it to uh, go to the part of the cage you put a sugar drink in in a cup and he'll go there. If on the other hand uh, you want the rat to stay away from the part of the cage, you you shock his foot with electricity. And this poor guy thought you could apply this to human beings. So uh, Skinner is completely uninterested in the inner life of human beings. What's actually going on? It's like Freud had never existed. You know, the idea that we have an unconscious and the unconscious is shaped by early childhood experience and that That unconscious actually creates most of our our, our emotional reactions and and thoughts. Um, Skinner has no interest in it because he just looks at behavior. But behavior, which is obviously ridiculous, because behaviors are only manifestations of inner dynamics. You can't tell anybody. Uh, You can't tell about a person until you consider what's happening inside them. And to the behaviorist, that doesn't make any difference. It's not even knowable. So they just look at behavior and how to change behavior so Skinner is beloved uh by um uh by by corporate uh culture because it's all about changing people's behavior and uh and and, and as a method of child-rearing, of course it simply translates into punishments and rewards, forgetting that human beings are not rats in a cage that we have a far more complex uh psycho emotional life and uh behaviors are only manifestations. So I have nothing good to say about Skinner as any kind of a model to understand human beings from.
1: It sounds to me like I totally agree with you given the information you've offered. I've actually heard an argument recently that somebody was making against some of the theories that the people in the Zeitgeist movement talk about in regards to environment-shaping behavior. He was like, you know, my cat was raised domestically, but it still hunts mice. And I'm like, yeah, but we're not cats.
0: Well, we're not for. cats, and 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 and, uh, and it's true that the cat, you know, that, that's instinctive behavior for the cat, and that's you know obviously. But the friend who said that should try an experiment: mm-hmm. having get two, having get two little kittens from the same mother, and treat one of them badly and treat the other one well, and see what happens. Does he imagine that they're both going to grow up the same way? Does he imagine that they'll both behave the same way? So if he actually thinks that it's all instinct, you should just do that little experiment of exposing two cats to completely different environments and see what happens to them.
1: Yeah, that just screams in the face. I mean, that, you know, as far as like what that goes on and it, it occurred to me actually, the funny thing is even those instincts can be changed. Like, um, I've been, you know, I've actually seen that a, a mother cat will even adopt a baby rat, um, Allow it to feed from her and everything. If she happens to have a litter at that time, like the the mothering issues will overcome that. And the funny thing is, the kittens that are raised together um, don't regard each other uh, as separate. They see the same thing. And like, uh, there's this um, uh, forget where it is, but I know it's over in Africa. I believe there's somebody who owns a lion and a tiger, and I think a cougar, and he yeah. raised them all together. Yeah, and in the wild, these animals would kill each other, but they're they're brothers and sisters. They act like they're part of the same
0: pack. Yeah, well, you see this all the time. Uh, so that you know, and, and of course, the higher up the evolutionary ladder you go,
1: and certainly when it comes
0: to human beings, instincts just doesn't uh, it just doesn't govern behavior. Uh, it, it governs um, the same instinct. Let me give you an example. With instinct uh human beings are instinctually um, moved to connect with other human beings that's just the truth- that's just the truth you know because we're wired that way our way our, our brain is wired for connection. this is contrary to the capitalist myth that we're wired for competition and individualism we're actually wired for connection. but how that plays out in real life depends very much on the environment so that if a child who's wired for connection doesn't get connection, then he'll be a loner and maybe a, a, a misanthrope and, and somebody who's uh, uh, even violent or hostile. Uh, but a child who's brought up with, with a nurturing environment, that same drive for connection, if it's not frustrated, will express himself in uh, sociability and uh, and humane contact. Um, so that instincts don't govern our behaviors. they They govern our... They express our our basic needs, but they don't um, they don't predict how we're going to behave in a particular situation. That's very much dependent on how we're how we're uh, uh, conditioned, actually.
1: Right. You know, and that's um, especially in regard. You know, I was going to ask you uh, in regards to the work that are you familiar with James? I think it's James Gilligan. Uh,
0: the ex- yeah. Well, he was in also in the Zeitgeist film.
1: Yes, he was. That's why I was curious what you thought of his talking about the, the way that all of the criminals that he had been exposed to were generally abused. And I mean, if you were familiar with this work yeah, and what you thought of it,
0: it's not even controversial. I mean, that's just how it is. Right. There's not, there's not a single, uh, uh, serial murderer who hadn't been abused as a child. And, um, and, and it was it was Gilligan. I think who talked about this research in Australia where they looked at some children who were very violent and they had a certain gene, uh, that seemed to make them more prone from violence, but they had also been abused at home, these kids. And when you look at kids with the same gene who had been well-treated at home, they were less violent than the other kids. In other words, the gene did not code for violence at all. It coded for sensitivity. So that uh, the more sensitive you are, the more you're affected by the environment. If you're in a good environment, it's going to make you extra good. If you're in a bad environment, it's going to make you extra bad. But the uh, gene wasn't for badness or violence. It was just for degrees of responsibility to the environment. So um, genes are very are really funny things to... It's it's very simplistic to think that genes determine human behavior. They don't.
1: Well, it seems, as uh, we've pointed out, is that it is kind of... Maybe it's a tool. I mean, this is what occurred to me when I was thinking about it because... It occurred to me that our our bodies and our genes already adapt to the environment because you have people with different racial backgrounds that are clearly designed to assist them with the physical aspects of their environment. And if you're raised in a, a violent culture, then you're prone to violence because that's what's required of you to survive. And if you don't, but you, you know, but every, obviously, you know, it, it only comes into play if it's necessary. I think that's kind of the point. It's like maybe the gene is there as a defense mechanism, in the event that it is required that that person be violent to survive in a given society, but if that's never activated, then there's no purpose for that gene, so it just doesn't it doesn't move it doesn't do anything It's, it's just well, like anything else you don't develop.
0: Well, that's broadly true. Our genes are actually represent potentials and uh, rather than uh, specific uh, behaviors and uh, which behavior results from a certain gene depends very much on how that's triggered or shut off or turned on by the environment
1: right. Um, Now, we have another question here. Are you aware um, of the work, and if you are, what what is your opinion of the work of Don Beck and Spiral Dynamics?
0: You know, uh, I get so many questions that I have no clue about, and this is one of them.
1: (laughs) That's okay. That's no problem. It happens. Um, Now, we have another question here. In the interview, this actually is, I guess, related to the Skinner question. In the the interview on Zeitgeist Moving Forward, you talk about things that should not happen – and uh, that do and things that should happen that don't yeah. um, is that not related to implications from Skinner's behaviorism at all?
0: I don't see what the connection is
1: I don't really see what the one is but I was just asking
0: uh, the question what that statement means is that and, and it's a phrase by the, the British uh, child psychiatrist and psychoanalyst uh, D.W. Winnicott who said that, basically, in child development, two things can go wrong. One is if things happen that shouldn't happen, and by that, one would mean abuse and trauma and so on, you know, they they shouldn't happen. But the other is things that don't happen that should happen. So if if the parents are, what the child needs is attuned, non-stressed parenting. When the parents are too distracted and uh, unavailable or too caught up in their own stuff or too um, enmeshed in their own struggles with each other, and the child doesn't get that attuned attention, then the child also doesn't develop optimally. So those are the two things, things that shouldn't happen or that that, that do or things that should happen but don't. And in our culture, a lot of kids or a lot of people, when they look at their childhoods, they say, well, what, what was wrong? I had a perfectly good childhood. I was never beaten, sexually abused or traumatized. But they don't look at what they didn't get that they should have got. Right. And that was that attuned attention. So I'm not sure how to relate that to behaviorism. Um, but uh, it certainly results in certain behaviors Uh, that's true but you're not going to know that just by looking at the behavior it's a question of what happened to cause that behavior And uh, so for example a a kid who um, didn't get the attention that they wanted they might be consumed by being attractive because being attractive is one way to get attention so the behavior is only a manifestation of an inner emotional loss.
1: I've actually seen that firsthand. I have a, I would call him a former friend. Um, he was, you know, his father basically kind of left them at a, at a young age and um, he became a total perfectionist and was obsessed with winning all the time even yeah. as an adult uh he lost at a video game and he threw a controller at the wall because he was so upset that he lost he had to be the absolute best at everything at all times and uh anytime his father rejected him which is apparently fairly frequently um he just he was he was devastated and that's it's interesting because it's not that that person was ever in his life abusing him because he wasn't around it's that he yeah. wasn't there
0: well yeah and the and the problem is of course is that uh the the kid then uh basically has an idea not an idea an unconscious sense that he's just not good enough and so that when he loses that uh exposes his um sense of inadequacy and that's why he's so angry.
1: Yeah that's very true.
0: But well, you're not gonna explain you're not gonna explain that behaviorally. You have to really look inside a person's psyche uh to see what's really going on here.
1: It's interesting that you say that, and I guess some doctors don't really look at it that way, and it, it's too bad. Well, how would they? They're not trained
0: in it. Uh, you, in, in, in medical school, you never hear a thing about normal human psychology. That's astonishing. But you go to medical school, nobody teaches you about normal human development or what's really going on inside human beings. That's just not even considered part of the c- c- curriculum. So the, the so the average doctor is... Um, by training, not at all prepared to deal with uh, anything except the manifestations of of internal dynamics, but they don't know anything about what's causing or what those dynamics are all about. Doctors do develop some wisdom because they deal with people all the time, and if they open their eyes, they will learn a lot, but most physicians are just not attuned that way.
1: Now, we have another question here. This is regarding one of your books. Uh, He says... Um, I started to read your book, When the Body Says No. Do you know if medical science in general is starting to recognize the impact of psychological stress as a major reason to various diseases?
0: Well, um, I don't know about medical science in general, but there's certainly a lot more of it. In the March 21st edition of the New Yorker magazine, there's an article entitled The Poverty Clinic, where uh, there's a woman, a physician who works in San Francisco. Um, who um actually started is, is is looked at the research just as I have of early childhood experience and and its impact on on health. And so uh there's been a lot of research now on that. And uh you know, the studies are coming in every week, you know, if, if your parents are divorced, your risk of a stroke doubles, you know, as an adult. Wow. Uh if um if you're abused as a child, your risk of cancer goes up 50%. Um if, if if you had many stressful experiences as a child, your risk of heart disease is exponentially greater. I mean, it's just uh, uh, the studies are, are just coming in all the time. It's, it's, again, it's hardly even controversial. But again, it's not information that most physicians either know about or even if they do know about it, know what to do with. It's just not part of our training. But it is happening more and more. There's more and more awareness. So I have, I have to say that. And so it's happening very slowly, but it is happening. I mean, now, we're, we're we're decades behind the science. we in our practice, we're decades behind the research.
1: It's really too bad that this kind of thing is not being focused on more. I mean, I can see it myself in my own life. I had read a study because, uh, like, I'm kind of a, I'm a stay-at-home father, so you know, yeah. I and I recognized that I was getting really stressed out, and it was such a problem. And then I, I saw a study that um, said that. Uh, Stay-at-home fathers who do not engage in some kind of physical hobby—they recommended things like paintball or, you know, some kind of sport or whatever—were 86% more likely to develop some form of terminal illness, including stroke, heart disease, heart attacks, things of that nature. 86%. I looked at that and I I was so terrified. I was like, "Geez!" And as a result, I, I changed my hobbies. I have a lot of physical hobbies now, and. And they made me feel a hundred times better um yeah, what it's about,
0: of course is that uh if you don't allow yourself to get away from the stress if you uh if you don't express who you are artistically or creatively somehow you're actually hemming yourself in, and uh yeah, so that's almost double the risk of the diseases so uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all and mothers who are who look after chronically ill children when you look at their um molecular structure in their genes, they're 10 years older than their chronological age. They actually age Mm
1: -hmm.
0: much more rapidly.
1: I've seen that actually. You can see it in some people who live stressful lives. Um, Some teachers for example I've known, it just seems like they age really fast because they're Teach, they teach. I, I grew up in a pretty bad neighborhood, and the, it was really rough being a teacher there. I felt sorry for some of those people, and right. you, you could just tell every year it was like they aged ten years. I mean, you could see it right. in their face and their body, everything. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 too bad. Um, look over here. We have a lot of good questions coming in. I'm just gonna get them as I go. Um, now. Um, somebody here was asking about addiction. What was the, what is, what do you think is the best way to quit smoking tobacco? (laughs)
0: Um, well, I don't know. There's, I mean, there's a number of things you can do. You can get the nicotine patch. There's new medications you can get for quitting tobacco, you know, quitting smoking, which can be quite effective. Um, so, you know, that's a medical question in terms of, uh, finding, uh, something that, uh, helps to, uh, decrease the urge. There's an antidepressant called, uh, called Welbutrin, which was developed as antidepressant, but then it was found that, uh, people were, um, uh, finding that they weren't having the urge to smoke anymore. At least many people weren't. And so, um, they, uh, they they then market it then as, as a as a smoking uh cessation aid under the name of Zyban. And it's the same product as the antidepressant Welbutrin. And there are new product there are newer products as well, you know. So um uh, there's that so there's that pharmacological route, you know, which simply helps you to quit. Uh but then the other question is um what is the nicotine doing for you like uh, the nicotine is a is a stimulant it elevates the level of a chemical in the brain called um called dopamine and dopamine is essential for attention and focus and motivation so people are so and it's a stimulant uh nicotine is and stimulants of course is what we what we give to people with adhd attention deficit hyperactive disorder so I've been diagnosed with ADD myself, by the way. And uh, for a while, I took dextroamphetamine, which is a stimulant. You know, like Ritalin is a stimulant. Well, nicotine is as well. So a significant percentage of smokers are actually self-medicating ADHD by, 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 through the nicotine. So what I'm saying is that the, the addictions <clears throat> always have a role to play in your life. You didn't choose them consciously, and you didn't get hooked on purpose. It's doing something for you. So if you're going to quit smoking, you also need to look at what is that, what is it that the smoking is doing for me? What is it? I, I know the negative implications that those are clear, you know, from cancer to heart disease to everything else. But but what is the benefit that I'm getting? Why am I using it? What is it? What is it doing for me? And how can I get those qualities in my life without the cigarette? In other words, it's not just about the smoking; it's also about the function of the smoking in your life. And, and what it's replacing and what it's supplementing, and, and where there's an emptiness inside. Like sometimes you just have a feel you have to do a need to do something, anything with yourself. So then you have to chew on something or, or have a, a cigarette in your mouth or, or, um, or be drinking something. Well, what is that emptiness? What is that nervousness? What is that restlessness all about? So, so I think that there's the specific strategies to help you get over the withdrawal which is what these medications do, but then there's also the more broader question with any addiction is what is it doing for me that I don't know how to do for myself and how do I learn to do it for myself so I don't have to rely on the particular substance or the behaviors.
1: Have you ever looked at the psychological aspects that they got for the cigarette uh, communities, for example, not communities, the corporations that got Edward Bernays to develop that campaign to make women think that smoking made them independent and Strong-willed and things of that nature. Are You familiar with that? Uh,
0: no, I mean, I, I yes, I, I, vaguely. I haven't studied it.
1: Right. Basically, just it was the idea that um, they, they got at the time in question. Uh, he was passed uh, by the corporations because women didn't smoke at all. It was considered really gauche or dirty for women to smoke, and right. they went to Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and yes. asked him how they could you know, change that. And basically you might see every now and then you see an anti-smoking cigarette, you know, commercial. And one of them had a woman from that time period, I think it was around the forties or so, you know, saying smoking makes you independent and strong, you know, and it was, you know, and I was, that's why I was wondering, it's like, you, and that kind of plays into that is how much of it is also, is it a social or a psychological aspect? Like the fact that I have this cigarette means that I fit in with this crowd or, Things of that nature. I know, like, when they tell rock stars to quit, in many cases, those people have to totally change their groups of friends and everything because otherwise the same social patterns will bring them to use drugs again. Would you agree with that?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the environment is a powerful uh, inducer of addictive behavior. So if you're used to using a substance in a certain environment, you need to quit the environment very often. There's no question about it. the uh as far as what you're saying about Bernays well yeah he I mean, he was a, a astute uh reader of the public mind um he used uh, psychology for reasons that Freud never would have <laughs> intended but uh for a while of course the very idea of that women would smoke would be a way of actually it's a false form of women's liberation. I mean, look at the Virginia Slims that. You know, you've come a long way, baby. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you're no longer dependent. You're no longer subservient. You're, you can make your own decisions. You can kill yourself just as well as a man can. You know.
1: Yeah, and that's. I mean, it goes and, in all directions.
0: And by yeah. the way, interesting enough, women who smoke have double the risk of lung cancer that men do. Do
1: you think that's is it just some kind of biological thing about women?
0: yeah it's to do with the fact that women are more stressed, and That's a good uh, point. Uh, because smoking doesn't cause lung cancer um, uh, by which I don't mean that it doesn't contribute to it. It's a major contributor, and it's a major risk factor, but by itself um, it, it can't cause lung cancer because if it did, everybody who smoked would get lung cancer, right which means that there's got to be other factors. If it was the only factor, then everybody who smoked would get lung cancer. And so when you, they, they looked at studies of large-scale studies of smokers, and the people who <coughs> repressed themselves emotionally and smoked, they're the ones who are at risk. And if you, if you repressed emotionally and don't smoke, you still have a higher risk for lung cancer, for, you know, so that some people who don't smoke get lung cancer too. But by and large, because women are, in this society take on more stress, because they not only are... Uh, having their own stress to carry, but they tend to absorb the stresses of their men as well. That's their role. That's their conditioned role. Wow. So they, so they have double the stress and the stresses of their families, and they have less social support than they used to because they used to be much more social connection, community, clan, village, tribe, neighborhood, and people are more and more isolated. So that there's more stress, less support. They're, they're at higher risk.
1: Now, another really great question here. Um, basically, the person is asking, he, he said parent. I'm going to expand that to loved one. But how do you react? What, what is the best way to react to to a, uh, a parent or loved one who has an addiction? Is there a best way to interact with them to try to help them? Well,
0: look, I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in addiction to read my book on the subject, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Uh, and uh, one of the last chapters in it has to do with this very question. And so I can't uh, recite the whole chapter for you here, but what I can tell you is that the fundamental point is if there's somebody who's addicted in your life, there's only one decision you can make. Can you be with them or can you not be with them? Uh, If you can be with them in their addicted state and you can be with them, meaning not trying to change them, not trying to badger them, not trying to lecture them, not working to make them different, not manipulating them, then do it. But if it's too painful for you, if it's too difficult for you, then you have to say, look, I love you very much, but when you're in this addictive phase, I can't be with you, I can't handle it. But the worst thing to do is to be with them and try and change them. So either you're gonna be with them, uh and and accept them how they are, or or you can choose not to be um, not to be with them. That's a fair enough choice. But don't try to be with them and try to control them, change them. Um Rescue them, because you can't.
1: Yeah, I know what that's like for sure, and it, it's really painful. Um, my mother was a smoker all her life, and ironically, she ended up dying of lung cancer too. Um, that's right. And now, um, the next question uh, that came up actually was uh, in regards
0: to – well, actually, I
1: wanted to ask you first. Can you, can you give the name of that book again and then maybe give them your website so that they can find it?
0: Sure. The name of the book is uh, "In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts: Close Encounters with Addiction." The website is www. And then small case, Doctor D. R. G. A. B. O. R. M. A. T. E. dot com. It's being revamped right now, but um, it's, the information is is there, and all my books are listed there, along with the write-ups for them, and uh, and so on. There's also a bunch of uh, videos people watch on YouTube if they want to on me lecturing on addiction and, and other issues.
1: Excellent. Um, now, uh, do you know about primal therapy? And if yeah, so, yeah. what do you think about it?
0: Well, primal therapy was developed actually by a man called Arthur Yanov. In fact, I just got an email from him yesterday, J A J A N O V, And it's about um, the theory being is that in order to fully release the pain or trauma that one experienced in childhood or even infancy, one needs to go back to that state and um, and scream it out, really. And uh, I know people who've done it, and they certainly feel liberated by it. A very famous example of one of clients that Yanov had was John Lennon in the 1970s. Uh, Lennon, after the Beatles broke up. And Lennon, of course, was a cocaine addict all his life. I mean, all his ad- much of his adult life, and he died a cocaine addict, actually. And uh, he had a typical story for an addict in that he was um, abandoned by his father, either either at birth or just before his birth. And then his mother walked out on him when he was very young, like a year or two old, maybe less. And he was barred by an aunt. And then his mother came back into his life and was killed in a car accident. So he had tremendous sense of loss and grief and, and trauma. And he wrote a very powerful song. You might look for it on the net if you can find it, called "Mother." And he wrote, and, and this is the solo album that he did after the Beatles broke up. And it's one of the most powerful pop music expressions you'll ever, ever uh, experience. Uh, it's got the famous song on it, "Working Class Hero," and, and it's just um, Lennon with uh, playing the piano or the uh, guitar, and Klaus Worman playing uh, the bass, and, and Ringo Starr on drums. And uh, Lennon's uh, very haunting and haunted and tormented voice. And in his song, Mother, it begins, Mother, you had me, but I didn't have you. Father, you left me, but I didn't leave you. And then he screams, uh, Mother, don't go. Mommy, don't go. Daddy, come back. And he screams it along that primal scream line. It's extraordinarily powerful.
1: That's actually, Working Class Hero, I think is, I've often suggested that to be like one of the theme songs of the Zeitgeist Movement because a lot of the things that he says in that song are just very powerful, like about how, you know, after they've beaten you up, they expect you to pick a career, you know, uh, things like that that were in that song that are just really
0: meaningful. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. and that at the very end he says, they didn't want me, so they made me a star. <laughs> So that, you know, they didn't want him who he really was. They, they they had to create an image of him, you know? Now, of course, he's also talking about himself there. But anyway, in terms of Primal Scream, that's the album that he uh, composed uh, as a result of his, his therapy. He didn't complete the therapy, unfortunately, for him. Him and Yana had a disagreement over Yoko Ono, I think. And uh, he quit. Um... But uh nevertheless, it's a tribute to the uh, his own attempt at liberation and uh, the work that he did with Arthur Yenna.
1: right now um let's see when it comes to personal prejudice, is it due to environmental input uh anti issue due to the views of others around you or input from the t v etc.? basically, I guess the person is asking where they where Prejudices come from. I'd, I'd say their environment. What do you think?
0: Well, nobody's born with prejudice. I mean, uh, an infant doesn't care whether somebody's black or or, or pink or whatever. You know, uh, so it's not, so it's, not a, it's not an inborn trait, that's for sure. And uh, it, it's 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 I think it's a combination of two things, actually. Jean Paul Sartre, uh, who wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew. You know Sartre, the, the French philosopher, existentialist philosopher, and uh, he wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew. And he writes somewhere that um, that the Jew is the last thing that the uh, anti-Semite is actually afraid of. That he's actually afraid of freedom, and above all, he's afraid of himself. So that the the, the person who's deeply stuck in prejudice, it's an, actually an emotional dynamic. It's um, it's a, a self-hatred that he projects to some, onto somebody else. And it's got nothing to do with that other. I mean, the other is totally arbitrary. Who the other is, is then defined by the culture. So in the southern United States, the other was the black. In Germany in the 1930s, the other was the Jew. Uh, for Jews in, in Israel, the other is the Palestinian. But who the other is, is simply almost arbitrary. And, and that's provided by the environment. But the hatred itself, the the loathing, that has to do with the self. If somebody who doesn't have that internal self-loathing will not believe the propaganda uh, from the outside, and if they do, they'll let go of it very quickly because they're able to learn from experience.
1: That's an interesting point. I was never really vulnerable to propaganda my whole life. Um, my mother raised me that way, mind you. She was always teaching me to be skeptical, but... A lot of it was also just she was very big on me having uh, a strong attitude about my ability to think and not let anybody make up my mind for me. I never really thought about that attitude, that propaganda works also due to the low self-esteem of the people that are looking at it because they don't want to be different. And That's if everybody else is going along with it, well, I better.
0: Also, they're afraid to be free. They're afraid of the very idea that they should think for themselves because they feel very insecure with that. So it's more secure to accept the majority point of view. Uh, yeah. It, it, it has to do with the inner sense of self. Everything does, by the way.
1: Absolutely. Now, another question. Um, how much would you say environmental influence contributes to obsessive-compulsive disorders and behaviors?
0: Well, most psychiatrists will tell you that it's probably a genetic disorder. I don't think it is. I think that it, uh,
1: it, it has a lot in
0: common with uh, addictions in that both addictions and OCD have to do with behaviors that have negative consequences, but you persist in them. The difference is that the person with OCD doesn't crave the behavior and finds no pleasure in it. So he doesn't crave or enjoy having to wash his hand a hundred times before he leaves the house, whereas the person with an addictive impulse craves the behavior and enjoys it as long as it lasts. So that's a big difference. But the base of it, I think, is in both cases childhood trauma. And for the person with OCD, the behavior that they're stuck on is simply an unconscious way of getting away from emotional pain or distress that they don't know what to do with. So they focus energy on something that's totally irrelevant and non-threatening and uh, hope to keep themselves safe that way. But the dynamics, the, the fundamental cause of it goes back again to childhood emotional loss or trauma.
1: Well, that friend of mine that we were talking about earlier was definitely obsessive-compulsive about training, uh, practicing, being, you know, and it was definitely environmental. He he thought that he needed to do that to be a worthwhile person, and that was created by his need to please his father. So yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that.
0: Yeah, but I don't know if I, I mean, I don't know I don't know enough about him to diagnose him with OCD. OCD is very specific. You have these compulsive behaviors that you can't help. Right. Which have no practical value, but for you they have some magical value. You know, you have to check the door fifty-five times before you leave the house—not fifty-four, not fifty-six, fifty-five times. You know. Ah, so that, okay. Yeah, that, it, it's that specific.
1: I see what you mean. Now, no, but
0: it, like with everything else, though, it um it there's a continuum, right? There's some people more severe, other people less affected, so that it, uh it there's a whole range of compulsive obsessive behavior. Uh, and then there's the extreme, and there's the what you can diagnose as OCD. Now, by the way, I have to warn you. I have five minutes. So I have to go.
1: I understand. I'll just leave you with one last question um, that somebody okay. asked from the audience, and then you'll be good to go. Okay. Uh, I recently discovered an accredited online school called K-12. Does Gabor think that cyber schools may be an answer to the peer orientation problem-facing society?
0: Well... Um... No. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the internet, by and large, is a way for peers to connect with one another, even when they're not together physically. I don't. I can't comment. You know what? I, I have to say. I'll have to withdraw an answer to that question. A, a good school run on the internet by uh, by by um, accredited or at least uh, knowledgeable and uh, People who have integrity, who are not there to exploit anybody's credulity, uh, but who are there to actually provide a good service. You can learn a lot there, and that could be very helpful, I suppose. But it doesn't connect to me with the issue of peer orientation. That's a separate issue.
1: Okay. Do you think you have time for one more?
0: Let me just say about peer orientation. For those that don't know, that's another book of mine called Hold On To Your Kids, and I know you're familiar with it, I think. Yes. And uh, and, uh, it's about how in this culture young people connect. Or children connect too much with other kids precisely because the, the the nurturing adults are absent from their lives. And now you have children affecting each other too much in terms of development, which is an unusual aberration in human life. Uh, the culture is meant to be passed on vertically from one generation to the next, not immutably, and not so that it's rigid or stale, but, but certainly uh, each generation can adapt it, but there's a kind of a vertical flow to it. And today that's, Pretty much being cut off, and culture is very horizontal now. People relating only to people their own age, which totally undermines development and maturation. And that's why you have, when they say that forties is 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 the uh, age 40 is the what used to be 20. What they're saying is that age 40 people are still immature, and many are, and that's because they were not brought up by adults; they were brought up by peers.
1: It's actually very interesting. I I don't know if I brought this up. I think I brought it up the first time we tried to do a conversation, and we had technical problems, but a friend of mine works mostly with uh, children, and he works with retarded children and disabled children, and his own daughter is really smart and talks so well. I mean, she was only like five years old, and she was very articulate, and I asked him what his secret was, and he said, I don't talk to her like a baby. I talk to her like a person, like an adult.
0: Right. Well, I would probably add to that, and he may not be aware of it is that he's got a really good relationship with her. Right. And, she's, and she's probably not connected to the peer group. She might have friends, but she, but, that, but they're not her primary influence, where for a lot of kids they actually are.
1: Well, Dr. Gabor, thank you very much for coming on. Um, I always look forward to shows with you, and I appreciate you coming on tonight. And um, go ahead and give out your website one more time so that people know where to find your books. A lot of people are reading them in the chat room, by the way. They've been, been
0: talking about them, so you got a lot of fans. I'm glad to hear that. So the um, the website is uh, www dr gabor g a b o r m a t e so it's all one word dr dot com and you can read about my books there. There's a page called Media and Links where there's a bunch of links to interviews or documentaries that I'm engaged in. And um, thanks, Neil, very much uh, for the interest in my work and for the interview.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ebert, also just for being somebody who is a professional who could be doing anything, and instead you're doing great work that actually is going to help people. It's an honor to have you on my show.
0: All right, then. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Well, folks, that was Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, thanks again for tuning into this episode of V-Radio. Please feel free to visit my website, vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, There you can find archives of shows just like this one, including another interview with Dr. Gabriel Amate. Um, Coming up soon on V Radio, I will have uh, Professor Jeff Tester, a MIT professor and an expert on geothermal energy. Um, He's very excited, actually, to do the show. He's just been very busy um so thanks again everybody also for those of you who donated i really appreciate it we reached our donation goal i'm going to go ahead and put the next one up only donate if you feel that you can for this month uh don't forget to support the venus project film i know a lot of you guys are thinking that you know you can't make a difference but even if everybody just donated two dollars a person we, we could get a lot of money for the film and a lot you know and obviously be able to keep me going on v radio I work for you guys. And that reminds me, if you have any uh, ideas for show topics, please don't hesitate to bring them up. Um, I'm looking for more opportunities there. And if you're interested in being a panelist on V-Radio for my various shows where we read one of my blogs, uh, don't hesitate to contact me. Um, In addition, please sign up for the V-Radio forums. You can find those on my website. Uh, You can talk about uh, the issues that have been brought up on the show. If you have questions for future guests or suggestions, things of that nature, please don't hesitate to check that out. Um, In addition, um, Fans of V Radio, with a period at the end of it, is my Facebook group. Um, There you can find – I put a lot of announcements there, uh, different links and things that I come across – so uh, don't forget to uh, you know check out that Facebook group. It's fans of V Radio. Same thing, V hyphen Radio, uh, with a period at the end of it. You have to request to join. That's uh, so how I keep it troll-free. Um, and uh, in addition to that, guys, uh, I've added some new stuff to the must-see TV list on my website. That's the list of free documentaries that you can read or watch online for free, including. I have a dot-sub version of uh, Pyramids of Waste, The Lightbulb Conspiracy. This film is critical, must-see TV. If anybody ever tells you that planned obsolescence is not real, show them this documentary. The dot-sub version has, do- has the subtitles for all the German parts. It was originally a European documentary, so they didn't bother to put up subtitles for the German parts in English. Um, but this documentary really gets into the issue of plant obsolescence, documented proof. I showed this documentary to uh, to Stefan Molyneux because he had told he had made a video saying plant obsolescence was a myth. It was kind of funny actually because after he watched it, I said, "So what did you think?" He's like, "Well, yeah. Who makes a computer to last for a hundred years? That doesn't even make any sense." I was like, "Okay, so you're admitting that plant obsolescence is real?" <laughs> He's like hesitates for a moment and he's like well yeah but it's consumer driven and i'm like okay i just stopped talking to him about that point but just the fact that i got stefan to admit that planned obsolescence was real was enough victory for me um and essentially at that point he just said it's consumer driven like i intentionally decided to buy things like a printer that is programmed to decide that it's broken at so many prints That's not a joke, folks. When you watch this documentary, you'll learn all about it. Um, So you can find that in my must-see TV area, along with some other great documentaries that I found recently, including Consuming Kids, um, which is a great, great film on the issues of marketing to children. If you're a parent, you should watch this documentary for absolute sure, because it changed my whole attitude about what I allow my kids to see. Um, it's really important that you see consuming kids. Even as an adult, it's a good idea for you to watch it because it'll help you pick up on the different things that were done to you as a child that caused you to have the wants and the needs and desires that you think you have, that you have. So I say needs, quote unquote. Um, So uh, basically, um, that was basically it, folks, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and answer what we have here. V, any plans of getting Molyneux on again and confronting him with the new intel? (laughs) Well, not really. Um, uh, Stefan and I still talk fairly frequently, and I have to say um, I, I don't dislike the man. He's a smart person, and he did stick up for us in a big way when he stepped forward and said that it was hogwash to be calling us a cult. Um, He actually was – he had brought that up on his own that he thought it was really lame that people were calling us a cult because they didn't agree with our financial or economic perspectives. Um, So um, in any case, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank all of you for your support. You're the reason that V-Radio is still going. Um, There's going to be some uh, upcoming shows. As I said, I was talking about uh, Jeff Tester, but I'm looking for most show topics. Um, Another thing, guys, is if you find anything that you think is relevant to my upcoming troll documentary, I'm looking for links with behavioral studies. I'm looking for examples of different uh, troll behaviors. Now, this does not just include, because as my research is unfolding, um, what I am finding is that uh, there is so much more to trolling than just uh, stupid kids on the Internet, although that's part of it, and I am going to get into that the cyberbullying aspect that trolling is actually getting kids to commit suicide uh... the government conspiracy aspect the fact that we've caught uh... the government you know creating uh... software for the purpose of creating false facebook accounts and false other social media accounts for the purpose of swaying public opinion Um it's it's definitely dangerous stuff folks trolling is serious business And I still think that the only way to protect ourselves in the end is to learn about logical fallacies and critical thinking skills. Um, In addition to that, uh, those segments about it, we're going to be going into obviously the the typical debate tactics that you see on the internet and, and how things are just really, as I said earlier, it's just, it's so full of noise. Um, And so, When you're reading things on the internet, be a little skeptical. I've noticed that there are videos. For example, this one Irish guy recently made a video to tell us that he was deprogramming us and all this other nonsense. He didn't have any evidence for any of his accusations about the Venus Project. He just kind of said it, and he spoke with confidence. And you'd be surprised how many people took the guy seriously. But it's because of the way that he projected himself. He spoke with confidence, looked like he was concerned for us, things of that nature. And he didn't really say anything of any substance. And he made another video later saying that Jock Fresco thinks of people as little plastic men. And then people applauded that video. Like it meant something. He doesn't even know Jock's never spoken to Jock. has no evidence that that's what Jock thinks. But he just kind of made it up and he spoke convincingly. And therefore people went along with it. I'm actually beginning to theorize over the course of my research that it's part of our conditioning. Because we've been conditioned to... Uh, accept what people, particularly on a TV or a monitor or a screen, say at face value because we're accustomed to that from the news. We're willing to accept whatever somebody says. One of the a major aspects of critical thinking skills is going to be about if somebody makes a claim, demand evidence immediately, period. Don't just let somebody say, well, Jacques Fresco thinks you know men are like these little plastic people. Say, well, where did you get that idea from? Could you give me some evidence for that idea? Because one of the things that drives me nuts as I watch things go on with this movement and other movements is that because of the Internet noise, there are so many people who don't ask these questions. They don't ask, well, how do you know that person is a 335th degree Freemason? Where did you find that out? They just kind of take it as face value. And that's one of the reasons why you find that the truth movement has so many contradictions. That's how the Zeitgeist movement ends up being Zionist and anti-Semitic somehow. We hate Jews so much that we want to give them their own homeland. <laughs> so crazy things that get said on the internet. And it's amazing how people can just do things like make associations and then through those associations, oh, look, it's true. Venus is the morning star. The morning star is Lucifer. And as I said in that previous interview uh, with Jacques Fresco and Roxanne, when we talked about this, if you go to the last verse in Revelation, it says that Jesus is the morning star. I doubt that they're interested in hearing any theories about how the Venus Project is actually the Jesus Project. So in any case, guys, um, continue to do what you're doing. Um, thank you for your support. Please visit v-radio.org. Check out the new stuff in Must See TV. Uh, check out the new stuff in the archives. If you have any suggestions for upcoming shows, please don't hesitate to email me. You can also check, get a hold of me on Facebook. All of that information is available on Contacts. The best way to get a hold of me is via Skype. If you have questions, I will try to answer them promptly. I'm going to warn you guys. I do get a lot of questions on Skype, so I may not answer you right away. Don't think that I'm ignoring you. Um, and uh, that's basically it. Thanks again, folks. I'm going to leave you with some parting words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows.
0: This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.